Gracious Father, we thank you for this beautiful day, for the snow that covers the earth, reminding us that though our sins are as scarlet, you have made them white as snow through the shed blood of your son, Jesus. Lord, bring us continually to that mercy and that grace um, revealed to us in your word. Bless us this morning as we we study how you've spoken and uh, addressed your people in the book of Genesis. Bless our time together and give us your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Question to start with, and this could take our whole time. I just want to take a minute with this. We see at the beginning of our chapters that we're reading this week, we start in Genesis 6, and I alluded to in the sermon as well. It said, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and then proceeds to wipe the earth clean with this flood. My question for you is that, in, in your opinion, are things better today than in the time of Noah. Are things better today than in the time of Noah? What do you think? No. Okay, Joanne's saying no, here knows. Jeff, you're saying yes. Okay, how so? We got Jesus. Oh, touche. Well played. Well, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. We've got Jesus. So in, in that respect. So maybe to rephrase it, are human, is human nature any better today? Are humans any better today than they were at the time of Noah? I think we're still broken. Still, still broken. If you met a guy from, from Noah's day and age and at that time, you think he'd be recognizable in terms of just the way he, he acted? Or you say, wow, that guy's way meaner than we are. Or perhaps even, yeah, actually wasn't so bad compared to some of the people I see on Facebook nowadays. Or, from New York. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, go ahead, Bob. I think they were. I mean, not saying we're not bad. Sure. But it seems like he said, first of all, it was totally corrupt. Uh-huh. There was only one family left. Right. That's pretty bleak. It was bleak. I mean, there's only eight folks that get on the ark out of all the population. Mm-hmm. We don't know how many were there, but right. eh, we're not quite there yet. Right. And, and otherwise, I think the judgment would be right now. Well, uh, this is a big question, and one that we'll, we'll get to as well. So, you know, Bob's saying, listen, it's, it, it seems to have been even worse than in terms of human nature and where it was at, that today, at least we've got more guardrails, we've got some things in place that <laughs> perhaps it's not quite so bad. It's an argument that we could debate endlessly. The bottom line is, it was really bad then, it's really bad now. Every generation tends to say, oh, it was better than the previous generation. Lane and I were just saying, we can't wait till we're grandpas and we're able to talk about how great the 80s were. Oh, my gosh. The 90s. Golden age of American civilization. 60s. 60s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the 60s, you weren't there. That's right. So let's just briefly give an overview of uh, the chapters from this past week. We're, gonna, we're talking about... Genesis 6 through 11 today, and I'll give you a little snapshot um, overview of just what was covered in those chapters. I'm going to do a deep dive on one section in particular, and then we'll open it up to your questions wherever you want to go with things from these chapters in Genesis that you want to discuss. And I've got an idea of a couple of things already, but we'll get there. All right, so chapter 6, we see that increasing corruption on the earth. Things are going from bad to worse. And so God says, and I do want to highlight this um, right off the bat, In verse uh, 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, I was uh, given this question during the week from someone who wasn't able to to make it this morning. I thought I'd address it now. So it reads at first that you say, okay, so now God's saying, he's proscribing the limit of human life. 
to 120 years. And yet, as we continue to read on in the Genesis narrative, even after the, the time of Noah, people are still living for many hundreds of years longer than that. So commentators that I've read and consulted for this say to a person, what this is talking about here is it's not here saying this is how long human life shall be. It's, it's God saying, I'm going to give you 120 years to clean up your act or else this is what's going to happen. In other words, God is giving them advance notice. Listen, I'm going to be wiping out the, the earth if you don't repent and return to me. And that interpretation really resonates with me because this is very much God's heart, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His desire is not to, he, he, he doesn't want, his heart is grieved, it says. He's sad where things are going. And so he's giving them this time. He's saying, here's 120 years Let's see if you can repent and return to me. Noah's going to, he's going to be out there preaching, proclaiming, listen to him, and yet it was not to be. Okay. And so we see then there's the call of Noah who finds favor. It's not the case that Noah is just, he's a great guy. Everybody else was miserable, and, and Noah, he's, he's a nice guy. Uh, but rather that he trusts in the Lord. His righteousness is received from the Lord by faith. Yeah, Ann? So we, we learn from the New Testament, he's called a, a preacher of righteousness and that he's, that God had called him and is he the only preacher out there? I mean, evidently, um, but I think that's part of his ministry as well as while he's, he's building the ark. Yeah, Bob? Well, the fact he's building the ark is a sermon unto itself. Correct. Yep. The fact that he's building the ark is a sermon unto itself. And by the way, that word favor in the Septuagint is charis. Yes, charis, which is grace. I mean, he finds grace. So sometimes this story just gets moralized that Noah's the good guy and everybody else is, is bad. The fact is everybody's bad. Noah trusts in the Lord. Now we see also later in chapter 9, and we can talk about that, like Noah was not all squeaky clean either. He had his, his own issues. Um, and so he's a sinner saved by grace, trust in the Lord. Then chapter 7, we get the actual coming of the flood and the rescue of Noah and his family, eight souls in all plus two or seven of every living creature. Most of them are two, and that's what we always hear, two by two, but there were seven of some of them. And why was that? They were going to be sacrificed. They were going to be sacrificed. So and when, after uh, Noah gets off of the ark and the, the earth, um, the waters recede, then it says, uh, let's see, in yeah, chapter 8, verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. It was of those clean animals that God had said, bring seven of them rather than two by two. So you've got some extra ones to be able to sacrifice. But imagine the faith of Noah in that moment. You're like, okay, now you are off the ark. You're, you've got to repopulate and replenish the whole earth. And this is all we got, right? This is what we've put up here, is <laughs> these animals, these, this food, and now I'm going to sacrifice this. In some ways, it foreshadows the even greater step of faith and sacrifice that, that Abraham's going to make. That we'll get to in a couple of weeks with, when it comes to his son. But it's trusting in the Lord to provide at that point. Chapter 8, then, the flood abates, and this is where... Noah sends out different birds. You've got the raven and then the dove. The dove returns with olive branch. Now a sign that, okay, things are 
are returning and restoring. We can get off of this thing. They spent over a year on that ark. You can only imagine the smell on it at that point. It was a little ripe, a little ripe, yeah. Um, chapter 9, then. We have God's covenant with all creation and the story that I alluded to of Noah's example, which shows that sin still persists. He becomes a worker of the soil, plants a vineyard, and as soon as he does, I mean, who knows how long that took exactly, but he's like, you know, he's waiting for those grapes to grow so he can make some wine, and the next thing we know, he's passed out, sloppy drunk, laid out. Yep. Okay. So he also is a sinner. Chapter 10 is the story of Noah's family and the so-called Table of Nations, which uh, recounts 70 different tribes. Okay, so we've got from, from these 70, all the rest of humanity is going to be populated. And that number 70 becomes really significant and kind of paradigmatic um, from the scriptures going on after that. Then chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, get about Shem's descendants, Terah's descendants, and the barrenness of Sarai. We hear for the first time about Sarai, her husband Abram, and that kind of leads into the next movement of the story, which is where we'll pick up with in our reading tomorrow, and then we'll discuss next week. All right, so that's just a quick overview, snapshot of those chapters. A lot of it is focusing on Noah and the flood and the fallout from that, and then at the end of that, the, the Tower of Babel. For our deep dive today, I want to draw your attention to chapter 9. So turn to Genesis chapter 9. And I want to share with you an insight uh, that came from my friend, Pastor Tim Cook, who's a pastor in Kansas. And when he shared this with me, I was kind of floored. And for some of you, I suspect it'll, it'll be more obvious, but it was not to me for reasons that will soon become plain. So uh, Genesis chapter 9, this is God making his, his covenant with Noah. So let me just pick up from verse 1. This is a really significant section. This is the first covenant. And in my email for this week with this chapter, I shared covenant was my word because it's such a freighted biblical word. It's this, this royal promise that God makes with his people. With, and here, with the whole creation, not just with Noah, but with all flesh. So it says, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. This is, you know, before been vegetarians and now much uh, to the joy of, of many of us here in this room, we can be meat eaters, right? Uh, but, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Okay, so there's that prescription against blood. And for your, life, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Okay, so all of this, what is this echoing that we've read already and heard already? Garden of Eden and the creation account in Genesis 1, right? Where in the beginning, God created male and female, made them in his image, said, be fruitful and multiply. Now God's restating this promise and this commission, this blessing. And he's, he's saying, in effect, like we're, we're starting anew here. It's a fresh start, but I'm still giving this aboriginal blessing. I'm restoring it to you and still calling you to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Team on it. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, 
and with every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It's for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. It's really significant that God's making this covenant, not just with his human creatures, but with the full physical creation. And this is an anticipation of a forward pointer to what we talk about, the new creation, that what we await ultimately when our Lord Jesus comes again is not just him you know, airlifting souls up to heaven where we're playing harps on clouds. What we're looking forward to is the renewal and restoration of God's good creation. As in the beginning, he said it was good and very good. So when our Lord comes again, when he descends from heaven, like a, you know, a, a bridegroom coming to his bride, then he's going to make all things new. Already that's anticipated here in this promise, this covenant made in Genesis 9 with the full physical creation. But I want to key in on, though, is the sign then that accompanies this covenant promise. The most famous in all of Bible and human history, even. Verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Okay, so God says, I'll, says, I'll set my bow in the clouds, which of course we know as what? Rainbow. A rainbow, right? A rainbow. So what's interesting about this is there is no separate Hebrew word for rainbow. It's just the word for a bow, as in like a, a bow and arrow. And so what this is pointing to, what God is suggesting, is that having flooded the earth, having washed the whole creation and and started anew, it's like he's hanging up his bow. He's hanging up his his weapon of war and saying, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to do this to you again. Psalm 46, just to to point to one text that uh, I think resonates with this. Famous psalm says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. See, he breaks the bow and he says, No more war, right? No more war in heaven because now, now you can rest in me. Or again, if you want to flip to it, Isaiah 40 is a wonderful passage. Speaks to, as well, this promise, which was only uh, given a foretaste of, and it's certainly in Noah's day and also in Isaiah's, but is now realized in Christ at the beginning of Isaiah 40. These wonderful words that we hear around Advent and Christmas time. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God says there through the prophet Isaiah that, listen, the warfare's over. The battle is over. We have an Easter hymn. The strife is over. The victory's won. I'm hanging up my bow in the clouds. I'm not going to be coming for you anymore, see. But this was the insight given to me by my, my buddy Tim who is a hunter, okay, and a, a bow hunter in particular. Any other bow hunters in here? No, we've got a, a, a few of you. 
And what Tim pointed out to me, very obvious, he said, when you see a rainbow or you picture it as a bow hanging in the clouds, which way is the bow pointing? It's pointing at heaven. So that if you were to, to shoot an arrow, that, that arrow is not pointed at earth any longer. It's pointed at heaven. <clears throat> so that, as Pastor Cook um, shared with me, he said, what God is conveying there is, listen, I'm, I'm hanging up my weapon. The strife is over. The battle is done, okay? I'm not going to flood the earth anymore. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still going to be, and pardon my French, hell to pay, right? But that now he is the one who is going to absorb it. That arrow is pointed at heaven. God himself is going to take that hit in the person of his son. And again, this, this echoes Genesis 3. We talked about this last week, that the, the offspring of Eve is going to come, that he's going to crush the serpent's head even while his own heel will be bruised. So God has hung up the bow in the clouds. He's, he's completed his work of war, but he himself is still going to be slain. There was just a profound insight that had not occurred to me, and it took my hunter friend from Kansas to, to draw to my attention. But maybe others of you, is that a, a thought that you've had before? Or is that, Jim, you're nodding in your head. Was that something that you had, had occurred to you as well? Yeah. Makes sense. For those of us who aren't hunters, no, didn't, didn't catch that necessarily. But it's a profound uh, statement of the gospel already here in, in Genesis chapter 9. And again, I think it's echoed by Romans 8 says that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, he is acting single-handedly to save. He is doing on our behalf, acting for us making that possible. And in our readings for this coming week, excuse me, uh, we're going to see another incredible example of this kind of single-handed salvation of God. I don't want to step on that. We'll, we'll see that this next week. But thoughts on that covenant specifically and, and those verses from chapter 9, or else then we'll get into your questions about these chapters generally. All right. Thus far about the rainbow, God's bow in the clouds. So let's get after what are your questions. We can go wherever you want to go from Genesis chapters 6 through 11 as you've been reading and reflecting on it. What are things that you were wondering about? And yeah, go ahead, Chip. I'll give you the first word. Yeah, so um, it looks like God like tried something. It didn't work. Right. <laughs> He's changing course. Right. Right. These are not things we normally associate with God. We think of omniscience, yes. powerful knows the knows our steps ahead of us so how do you interpret this sort of like hey i'm sick of you all i'm gonna wipe out the earth i'm gonna start over oh my gosh it, it didn't turn out as you said in your sermon it didn't turn out any better right, right. you know and and so did uh, but then we have the promise to eve in the garden that her offspring would would crush the head of the of the of the, of the servant so like um, how does this fit into this grand narrative right. that God's going to save the earth? Yep. You know, is it just a big oil? Is the whole thing just so we get oil? You know, so we get have, you know, all, all the waters are so they get compressed. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Okay. So Chip's asking a question that I'm sure many of us have have wondered about and perhaps wrestled with. 
which is, you know, what's the deal? Like, it seems like God's doing a course correction here. I mean, I, I shared this uh, in my email this week from chapter 6, where it says that God, it grieved God to his heart. And we didn't really touch on it last week, but a similar question is asked, just even stepping one step further back. Like, so why does he even create humanity if he knows what's going to happen? Like, he knows that the fall into sin, I mean, he has this omniscience. So why does he even do it? knowing precisely how they're going to turn away, how it's going to break his heart. Now, I've got my thoughts on this, but before I, I share them, do any of you want to weigh in or, or have another related question, comment about that? Yeah, go ahead, Margo. Well, because he loves us. Okay, because he loves us. That's a, and that's he a, continues to put up with us. And so he continues to put up with us, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly right. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Is this... God's way of just letting his children make their own mistakes. And then like, see, I told you in the beginning, uh -huh. you were going to fail. See, you failed. And right. Now I'm going to show you the real way. Right. So once I give you a spanking. <laughs> <laughs> so is he just giving them a chance to learn from their mistakes and see, I, I told you so. I knew you did. Uh, I think there's some of them. There's some of them. But ultimately, it does have to go back to his, his heart, as Margot said. We have to see this through the lens of a Lord who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And go ahead, Lane. So is, is your question basically like, why would he even create the tree that could create the fall? Well, I mean, why even stick that in the, in, the, in the garden, right? I mean, that was, is that what you're kind of asking? I mean, I think that is right in there. Yeah, like why does God even why create the conditions? Why, why stick that tree in there? Why stick that tree in there? Why create the conditions in which the fall could happen, where sin could enter and death could enter into the world? And why get to this point now where you, okay, it, it grieves your heart, you've got to wipe the whole place except for just a, a few of them. And I'll be honest, there's, there's an aspect to this question that we simply don't know, right? And I, I don't think we can speak too much and say exactly what, what God's up to. I mean, this is, a, um, this is a profound mystery. And the fact that God went through this, and even that it shares, it gives us this glimpse into his kind of heavenly thought pattern to a certain extent. But what I do know is true is this, um, that to know God as creator is to know that he is a God of love, that he is a, a God who makes us and desires uh, to, to share his heart with his human creatures. And that's a beautiful thing. But to know a God who didn't just create us, but then in spite of rebelling from him, not once, but over and over and over again, who seeks us out, who goes to such great lengths in order ultimately to redeem and to restore his creation, to know God as not only creator, but as redeemer, as recreator, is to know the love of the Lord in a way that we, ne we never possibly could otherwise. Right? Yeah, it's Priscilla. I mean, in a very small way, I think we who are parents, there are times you want to kill your kid. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Right. And so you can, well, we won't tell you where the other bodies are. <laughs> you continue to love and, and, and want the best for them. And, you continue, and so I can understand, except on such a pure level, God, on the level of God's redeeming love, you know, I can see that. And I, I, can, I can understand, but even more in a, in a divine way. Yeah. Yeah, Bob. If our Lord sought our love, then he had to put the tree in the garden. Because if, if I can't say no to him, then I really can't say yes. Right. I can't remember but, how I found 
If I, that's right. If I can't say no to him, then I, I can't but, say yes. But yes. But that's the whole point. Yeah. If, I, if love is actually a treasure in response to him, I mean, Adam had the choice to yep. love the Lord back after he was found and made and everything else. I was going to say, yeah, be careful. She's in her Lutheran cage. Man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so the, the right to say no has is, is got to be there. Yeah, the right to say no has got to be there. But then through that, we are able to see that extent and the depths of, of his love. Yeah, Chip. Well, like back to the flood, though, okay? You guys went, went back to the garden. The flood. Is the flood an example where God, like, I'm going to say he screwed up, but he tried something, and he's like, God, this didn't work. Because, I mean, there's a, there's a sense of redemption because he does save eight people there. But a lot of people didn't get that right. that, that ticket on that, on that thing, right? Correct. I go I, I, sorry for the... Uh, the animals they got sacrificed. Like, made it on the ark, and they didn't make it off. Man, you know, that was it. But, 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 you know, does God change his mind there? Okay, so this is, this is a, a big theological question. Does God change his mind? And I hear in my ear the echo of one of my uh, Old Testament Hebrew profs. Uh, I think he's, he's been a, um, a guest up here at Camp Arcadia. Re- uh, Reed Lessing, Professor Reed Lessing. And he, he talks like, oh, okay, we got to go back to Genesis. And he would say, this is Nakam and the Nifal. This is Nakam and the Nifal, uh, which is the, the Hebrew word here, Nakam. And Nifal is a, a conjugation of the Hebrew verb. And it shows up only a handful of times in the Bible. And what Nakam and the Nifal gets translated as God regretted or God changed his mind. That there are places where God changed his mind. Now, Let's go back then to, to Genesis 6, and I'll show you where this is at. Okay, so, um, all right, so verse 6 is where it says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'll blot out the man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the earth, for I am sorry that I have made them. So that where it says he was sorry, that's the nakam and the nifal, there where he's, he's changing, I mean, his heart is, is changing, where it's like he's changing his mind. Now what's fascinating though, and what Professor Lesson would always point out, is that in every instance that we see this in the Bible, where it talks in this way, it's that God is making a movement from judgment to grace. That he is, is uh, has his mindset that he is going to do this thing, that he's going to um, wipe us out, and then he, he changes his mind. It happens in Exodus with Moses. It happens um, with Jonah in the book of Jonah where he's going to wipe out Ninevites. Now, so one way to look at this, and the, the, I think the way that we most naturally look at it is, oh, wait a second, you know, God only saves eight people, and instead he wipes out everybody else. And he changes his mind, so it's a, a bad idea. Other way to, to reframe it is to say everybody deserved it, but God moves it from judgment to mercy, says, I'm going to provide a way out. I'm going to provide these eight souls. So he had promised that in 120 years, I'm wiping everybody out. No, no flesh is left. But now he's actually provided a way where there's going to be a future to humanity. And you know, typologically or foreshadowing wise, Peter picks up on this, how ultimately this points toward holy baptism and how God wipes away our sin, puts to death what's evil in us and brings us back to life. So I'm not, Chip, what you're asking is a big question, but I think we miss it if we just look at it as, uh, oh, God's being so mean here. The converse is actually the case that God is being merciful when he could have just 
balled up the whole thing and pitched it. He says, actually, I'm going to preserve eight people and ensure that there's going to be a future for humanity when ultimately I'll be able to send my redeemer. Yep, Bob. Oh. It's wide open to save as many as who were willing to get on the boat. Right. And for a hundred years, Noah is saying it's happening. And right. For a hundred years, people stopped up their ears. That's how evil the world was. We choose not to believe this is going to happen. Yeah. Until that last moment. When it's too late. And, and one of the things that grabs me is it's I think it's in six maybe. Says God shut them in. Yeah, chapter seven. Yep. Door. Yep. And, and for me, that's huge, because in our day and age, as things seem to get worse and worse, we have this tendency to circle the wagon and kind of wait till Noah didn't get on the boat until God said, it's time. Yeah. And then God shut the door. So Noah wasn't even responding. I mean, if I'd been Noah in there and it said you know, to his wife, let's get on the boat, this has just gotten out of hand. Right. And then you hear the screams outside and people Oof. banging on the you know, there's got to be folks banging on the side of the ship. Right. Let me in, let me in. But it was God's decision that the door was shut. Well, this is such a profound point. It, God's the one who shuts the door. It's not our job to shut the door. In other words, it's not our job to shut people out, to say you're beyond the pale, you're beyond salvation. That's God's job to shut the door, not ours. Yeah, Ann, do you have... Um, the fish are also scared. And <laughs> the fish. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, and, yeah, it's good. Again, yeah, let's turn over. Get you. So, as far as the timeline is concerned, there isn't real definition at this stage between nations or peoples. Right. It, it's a generic response across what was mankind. Yes. Leading to a fall, but then through time there were perpetual failures and falling away. Right. And so the covenant was made with the people, the chosen people of Israel. So, so the biggest disappointment to God has to be Israel because they had the most connection <laughs> to him of any other people. Right. And yet they spurned the yeah. outreach. I mean, this is the, there's a, a verse in Amos, I think it's Amos chapter 5, where God says, You of all people have I, I known among all the nations of the earth, and therefore you will be punished worse than the other ones. So there's a sense in which, yeah, that is the greatest disappointment, precisely because God chooses them for the sake of the rest of the nations, and they were derelict in that duty. Exactly. Yeah. Now, what was Luther's take on that? I mean, I think Luther shared that perspective, where it broke his heart, where he was so grieved to see, as many Christians have through the ages, of like, why, why aren't they getting it? I mean, certainly our Lord Jesus, right? I mean, he... Jerusalem, Jerusalem, like he's weaving, weeping and grieving and a way not unlike God is here in Genesis 6, where it's like, it, it breaks his heart. This, I've created you for myself. Why are you rebelling? Why are you turning away? Did I see another? Yeah, Hans. Uh, the line of Christ is not always a great line. Correct. The line of Christ was not always a great morally upright line. Yeah. Like Noah's grandfather... <coughs> was still alive mm -hmm. to the flood. Sure, yeah. Uh, it was like, why isn't he getting Why isn't he in there, right? There's No, there's no shortage of bad dudes around there, and including in the, in the line of our Lord. Yeah, I mean, this is, so to get to, nobody's asked about it yet, but I know you want, you're wondering about those first few verses of, of chapter six. Because what's the deal with, what's going on here? 
when we've got, okay, man, man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, verse we read already, and then verse four, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okay, so just to, to back up a little bit, we have this division that happens as a result of the descendants of Cain and then the descendants of Seth. And this line of Seth, the Sethites, if you will, become the line of God's chosen people, the, the sons of God, as it were. Okay? And then you've got the Cainites, not the Canaanites, but the Cainites, those who are following that separate line. So that when we get to chapter 6, and we read that, okay, they began to multiply on the face of the earth. And it says about the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, there's a, an, a line of interpretation that prevails very much still today. And it's come to my attention that you can do searches. I don't encourage this, but if you do searches for this on YouTube, there's all kinds of videos and hot takes about what these verses mean. That the idea here is that these are, this is, well, forgive the phrase, angel sex. Okay, so the angels came down and they, uh, these are the sons of God because that phrase is used in the book of Job to describe angels. Okay, so that the angels come and they find uh, the, the daughters of man and that they, you know, kind of intermarry as it were and this is where things go south. There, there is that line of interpretation. And I, listen, I don't, know what to, I don't know what to make of that, but scripturally, like right here in terms of the context, the most apparent thing seems to be that the sons of God are speaking of these Sethites, okay? And then you have the daughters of man, those who are unbelievers who are not walking with God. We see in chapter 5 that there were people who had been walking with God, like Enoch, um, but that now in, in chapter 6, as time goes on, those who had been um, walking with God, they get drawn away and drawn astray by, oh, here's some ladies who are pretty attractive. They might not be walking with God, but we're going to unite with them. And that's what, um, this, this is, uh, these examples are adduced to show how humanity and why it's going corrupt and why it was going astray. Okay. Now, are the Nephilim then, what's going on with the Nephilim? Are these the, the fruit of these unions? And so this is the way the one line goes, is that you've got angels intermarrying with people. What they have then are Nephilim, and these Nephilim are like weird giants that are kind of walking the earth, and what's going on? Okay, uh, maybe, but that's from, from the text that does not seem to be the case. Nephilim only shows up in one other place in the book of Numbers. Um, the idea is that, yeah, they're people of large stature, and in the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it refers to them as gigantes, gigantic ones. Okay, so they're tall of stature, but they're not necessarily like Giants. They're not of, of um, like unhuman kind of proportions, but they're just like big dudes. Luther says they're like thugs. They were tyrants. The word Nephilim means it comes from the verb nafal to fall or to fall upon to attack. They were like the attackers. They were kind of like marauding raiders, is the idea. These two were were out there on the earth. Okay, so this is the the picture that we get. Then is that there's kind of this. Uh, intermarriage between those who are walking with God and those who are not. They were choosing to be more, more worldly and separating from the Lord. And then you have at the same time these Nephilim, these guys who are basically tyrants who are just kind of wandering around. I mean, picture like barbarians, basically. These are the Visigoths. 
And all of this just to show, leading up to, as we've already seen, how corrupt the world is. Okay, is that helpful at all? Uh, this is kind of just in a nutshell. Does anybody want to make a case for the angel sex interpretation or have any other evidence? Because that's, that's out there. Like that's in the, in the history of, of the church. There's that interpretation too. And maybe there's something to that. But from the text itself, I have a hard time justifying it. Yeah, Hans. Well, since they're from the same gene line, uh, being gigantic, something had to have changed. Oh, right, that they would have, that it would be of a different size. Yeah, so it's like, okay. But the thing is, too, Jesus speaks in in Matthew 22 and elsewhere of, you know, in the the resurrection, they're like the angels neither marrying nor given in marriage. And so the whole whole point of the angels is that they're immaterial. They're not, they don't, I mean, can they inhabit human bodies or something like that or basically possess them? That's where we're just, you know, going down a, a line that I don't know what to do with yet. Yeah, Charlie. Just out of curiosity, and I don't know the potential veracity of this interpretation, but are these, is, is the verbiage used there indicative of literal gigantic size physically? Mm. Or it says men of great renown. Right, exactly. Right? Are they metaphorically gigantic? I mean, like Martin Luther, yeah. for instance. Larger than life. He was particularly tall. Right. But. Yes, larger than life, something like that. Well, the I think there's some of that. In the Numbers reference, Numbers 13 somewhere, it does speak of them of being of large stature. So it made us feel like grasshoppers. Okay? So there, there is something to be said for that. Yeah, Bob? Yeah, they talk about Diana came and, and uh, then this Gog or Magog whom, whom Israelites killed on the, they attacked Israelites. They said his bed was huge. And they got remember the Gath, Goliath and brothers. Right. They're right. pretty good sized people. Right. Makes them known is their standing, their their absolute absolute obstinance toward God. Right. That they are in utter rebellion against Him, and that that ultimately is what is eliciting then um, the judgment that is that is to come. Link. I mean, Hans is kind of hitting that. What my thought is coming from a medical background. <clears throat> when you interbreed that has issues. Right. So like, like for example, like there's certain syndromes and diseases that are exclusive to almost the Amish population completely. Sure. Because of first cousins and sometimes, yeah. you know, an older sibling and a young, I mean, it, right. it, it's pretty, because there's no mixing. Gene pool's a little too shallow. Yeah, and so that's where my head kind of goes awry with a little of this, just coming from the medical, because I'm like, damn it, it's just, no one is family. They must have had some pretty wild mutations. And I mean, well, I mean, this is... And, and, and even with, mm-hmm. like, dogs. Like, I mean, you look at just a lot, you know, like, purebreds are, like, some of the <laughs> healthiest animals, whereas you get a mutt like our Jake, he's never going to kick the bar. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And, I mean, I'm just... That's from my own... No, that's... standpoint, I, I'm curious as to how that would tie in. No, I, well... I, yeah, I, I wonder about that, too. I, but I think it's fair to say that, um, and we were talking about this, Ian and I, with the kids the other day, that there's, at this point, like, the, the breadth of potential, you know, DNA is, is large. It's, you've got the whole uh, breadth of humanity that's contained within a smaller amount of people, so I can only imagine that it was possible. I mean, they were living hundreds and hundreds of years. So yeah, yeah. What's going on there, you know? I mean, right. Because 
you know, you get over 100 and you're, you know, you're famous in your area. You yes, know? right. Back then, you're like, oh, like no big kids, deal. Right. Kids. You heard about our kids. friend Methuselah. Yes. No processed foods back then. No processed foods. That was, the, that was actually the secret. Was the whole milk was the answer. So uh, I don't want to believe this any more than I already have. <laughs> Are there other questions from other parts of these chapters? Hans, I always love hearing from you, but I want to see, does anybody else have any other questions or things from these chapters that jumped out at you or that you were wondering about? No? Okay. All right, go ahead. Uh, does God need reminders? Oh, good. Does God need reminders? Because he, he remembers Noah. And I think the short answer is no. Okay, he's, he's, he's God. Although, going back to our heresy Bible study, this is the sort of thing which, uh, you know, Marcion and others who had this very negative view of the Old Testament would point to and say, See, God, the Old Testament God, he's ignorant, he's, he's not omnipotent or omniscient, he's not all-knowing, you know, he doesn't know where Adam is in the garden, he's sorry that he created man, he has to be reminded about Noah, oh yes, I forgot about that guy that I put on the boat. And so those are the sorts of things that we pointed to. But when it talks about God remembering somebody, and this, this comes up as well in um, Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and elsewhere, it's God recalling in love and acting on his promises. It's him recalling in love and acting on his promises. And I, I heard it um, said that uh, an analogy might be like, okay, I, I remembered my anniversary with my wife. Okay? That can't just mean that I, it mentally was called to mind. It means I better act on that knowledge as well, right? There's better be some, some flowers and some chocolates involved also. Um, with that re remembering, it's not just a, a mental thing, but it entails action with it, right? Or, you know, when you celebrate somebody's, somebody's birthday, yeah, we, you know, we remembered so-and-so's birthday. Um, and so God's remembering is not just him calling to mind. He hasn't forgotten it, but it's him bringing it to his heart and acting in love for the sake of his people, for the sake of creation. So that's what we see with him doing for Noah. He remembers Noah and his family, rescues them out of the flood, and begins again. Other sections of these chapters that you want to ask about or wondering about? Yeah, Dave. The Tower of Babel. Yeah. The Lord came down and he says, if as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. I don't know... When he says that, and I understand that he confused their language, but does he also mean that they have the capability to do anything? Right. Yeah, I mean, so that's the, the surface way of reading that for sure, right? Like they can do practically everything. Although at the same token, they're building this tower up to heaven. Oh, we're building up to heaven. And you kind of see God like... <clears throat> Oh, yes, it does look like they're up to something and says God has to come down. So, you know, how, how, how much are they actually capable of? I mean, I think there's, there's some hyperbole, some exaggeration here for sure. And yet there's a sense of uh, uh, they now all, all of these things are within their power and they're seeking to act in a way to, to undo what God is seeking to, to do for the benefit of creation. So, yeah, I don't know how literally you want to read that. They can do anything. Certainly with God, nothing's impossible, but, yeah, Bob? Well, the thought there is, is they're well on their way to creating a, a, um, 
a people that's just like the one I flooded. Yeah. In other words, they can do anything. I mean, the picture's already there. They're rebelling against God. He said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Right. They say there's wild animals out there. Best build a city with a big, tall wall. And let's take God on face to face. Yeah. So they're back at it again. Yeah. And he's just saying there's nothing they can't do. Right. Of evil. Yeah. I mean, Tower of Babel is basically just retelling the Adam and Eve story all over again, where once again, here's humanity trying to climb up. I do wonder too, and I, this is a little bit of, of conjecture, but these are people who have in their, in their historical memory ha, that humanity has been wiped off the face of the earth, right? There's been a, a great flood. And so if you're concerned that once again, uh, you know, another flood is going to come, you know, bows in the clouds notwithstanding, perhaps part of your, your thought process is, you know, we better build a really tall tower. <laughs> we better make some high ground so that just in case, you know, we just want to hedge our bets a little bit, make sure that this isn't going to happen to us again. Perhaps that's part of it, their thinking as well. Yeah, Chip. This is almost, oh, like, this is almost like a reflux story because yeah. we're up to the next chapter, but he's starting over again with a guy and his family. Yeah, it, and that's exactly where it's going to take us. Chip, do you have a What's the, the deal with the language as the solution? Is it confusing the... Uh, there's other ways you could do this, back on the tower, you know? Yeah. Like, so. Right. Yeah, why, why, doesn't just, why doesn't God just, you know, break up the building committee? Why does he have to, you know, scramble? <laughs> I mean, I can only answer this from a New Testament and theological perspective, that ultimately it is the, the flip side, the inverse of Pentecost, and God knowing what he's going to do with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, to put it real crassly, he's got to scatter their languages so that he can unite them once again at, at Pentecost. Uh, but it is, a, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing. So at this point, there's only one language? I'm, that's what it says, and, and the same words, right. So, yeah, Ann? My thought is that they are depending on the strength of man. Yes, for sure. And then that strength is in their ability to come together. To communicate, to convey. And yep. work as one, and they're not depending on God, and if they have Yeah. And with the language, it might be as much, well, they want to gather up on the top of this tower and look God eye to eye. Right, right. Like, you can't have a service if you're all up there on that tower if you're all speaking a different language. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's disrupting. Like that, that, that you're breaking up, like, their service or whatever it is, their, their goal. Yeah. It's more important to break up that than knock down the building. Sure. Right. That this is, I mean, this isn't just going to the um, surface problem of this tower, but deeper, the way that they are abusing the good gift of communication that God gave to them um, and instead using it for unholy means. So God says, we're going to scatter that now. All right. I'm seeing uh, eyes through the window telling me we need to break things up here. So we'll scatter our languages. Um, we will continue through Genesis this week, picking up in Genesis 12 with the story of Abram. I did want to leave you with just one last thought, a parting thought, which is we see in this sordid story of, of Noah and how he gets drunk and naked, he's laying there, and Ham goes and just wants to tell everybody about the shame of their dad for whatever reason. We can't see what his motivation is. But just such this beautiful sign of love from his other two sons who put the 
clothes on and walk backwards and cover up their dad without looking at him. And it, it calls to mind that verse from 1 Peter 4. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We're called to cover up the shame of our brother and sister, not to shut the door on those we think don't belong in the ark, but instead to continually reach out with the compassion of our Father, the one who has rescued us through the flood of holy baptism and made us his own. May we also share that love with others. All right. Thanks very much, guys. We'll be back next week.